Friends, we've had some good snowstorms lately, and it takes me back to when my family had our first crack at a snowstorm in Michigan, and it was a wild ride. We were on our way here, having been called, not yet accepted that call, and going to make our first visit. A snowy ride. I grew up in Wisconsin. Snowy roads were not something that scared me. Uh, but we turned the corner and started making our way up along the lake, and all of a sudden it was like two-track on 196, and the snow was blowing across, and there were people in the ditches and semis in the ditches. And man, I remember looking at my wife and being like, should we keep going? Do we have other options? I think the exits are worse. I don't know about this. What about? It's cold outside. What are we doing? And we got here. And I remember uh, some people were like, whoa, like you drove like last night in, in that? And yeah, yeah, we just, we just kept going through. Like, holy smokes, like everything was closed. Nobody was out there. You weren't supposed to do that. This was nuts. And then I started thinking about it some more. I had a two, four, and six-year-old in the back of the car. Sub-zero temperatures. If we got stuck out there, we are seriously up a creek. <laughs> I don't think I'd do that again. Yet, as I think about my three in the back seats of the car, they were content. Why? Well, partly because they were busy watching movies. That is true. <laughs> but also because they trusted. Mom and dad in the front are saying, it's okay, we'll get there. We'll get you through. Clearly, I'm not worthy of that trust. I had never put my kids intentionally in harm's way, but I'm fallible and sometimes foolish, and that was one of those times. Yet for them, with dad at the wheel and mom there to assure them it's okay, it meant that in their minds they were completely safe, and indeed, they were. Their experience of navigating some pretty scary stuff with a pretty great amount of peace, illustrates why it is so essential that we understand that God is trustworthy. That's the topic today. It's the sermon title uh, as well in our series here in the season of Epiphany called God Revealed. It's a pertinent to this time of year for the, the church for centuries in this time of the year, post-Christmas, prior to Lent, is in that time of uh, remembering how God has been revealed to the world, not just to the nation of Israel, but to the world as a whole. It's also some intentional equipping on the part of your pastors as we want to provide for you as you walk with everyday people every day toward inviting them into the abundant life of Jesus that increasingly we're striving to walk in. A life where you can expect that as you walk with everyday people in the places that you live, work, and play, a question will come up. I can't see God. I can't video chat him. I can't text him. I can't grab a coffee with him. So how can I know who he is and what he's like? And I imagine if you've grown up in the church, your initial answer would probably be something like, well, my pastor said, or when I was in confirmation class, I heard, or my parents told me about. And those are good answers, but we can do better than that. And in fact, the better option actually takes the burden off of you and lets Jesus do the heavy lifting. If you want to boil it down into just a phrase, I give you this. Read it along with me. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. One more time. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. 
It's, in fact, what Jesus says here in John 14. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. It's spoken of similarly right at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, his Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But not everybody believes that God is trustworthy. I say that because I've heard questions, sometimes from, you know, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders in confirmation, sometimes new member class, sometimes uh, long-time members of churches uh, in their 80s. Hey, questions like, if I die in a car accident and haven't confessed my sins, will I still be saved? Or its cousin, and far heavier, is it possible for someone that's taken their own life to be saved, since the last thing they did was sinful? It reveals the story that they've come to believe about God, that he's so concerned about punishing sin that it's not really possible to be certain that you're saved. So instead of instilling peace, And confidence, this God, the story that this God tells and therefore leads in their life, instills anxiety and fear. Before I get any further, let's just be super clear. God forgives all your sins, not just the ones you have confessed. So whether you haven't confessed it yet or don't get a chance to or all those things, that isn't what it comes down to. It comes down to whether or not the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for your sins and that came to you in the waters of baptism, in the proclamation of Scripture, in the receiving uh, at this table. You're forgiven. But it's not just a question that's struggled with. It's not just those who struggle with questions like that that I believe struggle with God being trustworthy. I think many of us know in our heads cognitively that God is trustworthy, but I think many of us struggle to believe it because of the way that we live our lives. Because, you know, if we really believe that God is trustworthy 100%, all of that, doing a tithe wouldn't be trying. Stepping into Sabbath would be simple. Turning from anxiety in the face of uncertainty would be a piece of cake. None of those things are easy. I, we struggle to trust that we'll be okay if we have less money in our control, less time in our control, that I'll be okay if I have one less day to get things done. I struggle to to not be in control of knowing how things could go, or even if they will work out when things are uncertain. And in those moments, one of two things is happening. Either we're not really considering the real story of who God is as we make those decisions, or the story we believe about God has some sort of asterisk on it, some sort of asterisk exception where we don't get taken care of in this particular situation. 
And so our response then is one not of trust, but rather of trust in ourselves to hold on to as much control as we need so that we can feel okay as we possibly could. And in the end, we all, whether the person that's asking you this question about who God is and what he's like or us ourselves, we all need to hear the real story, the one that Jesus tells so that we and those whom God will bring to faith through us can not just know, but live like God is trustworthy. Say it with me again. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. In fact, listen to Jesus. These are the words he spoke when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying prior to being arrested, whipped, beaten, crucified, knowing that he'd be carrying the weight of the sin of the world. You know what it is to feel heavy in guilt and shame. Set aside the physical struggles that comes from the beating that came with that. He carried everyone's shame, the weight of all of our guilt. Knowing that that's coming, he's asking, is that another way? But the first word that he says is huge here. Abba, Father. The word Abba, best translated, is, is like dear Father. And it expresses two things. One, both a close relationship with his Father, and two, an already leaning toward entrusting himself to that Father, already leaning toward obedience. Both of those things are kind of wrapped together in it. And this is significant because as Jesus is still expressing trust that the Father is close is great news for us because he is at the place of maybe his lowest low, the place where he's most inclined to believe that the Father has left him. This is truth that we can hold on to because you're believing a lie if you equate the hard time that you're experiencing with your Father being distant from you. That isn't what Jesus describes here where Jesus is maybe in the lowest of lows that's possible. In addition to that, Jesus is facing the most difficult day anyone ever could, and yet he's postured toward his Father. You know best. He's still postured in trust even there. It tells us that he believes something about his Father. We see a similar posture in the prayer that's our text today, Matthew chapter 6. So if you want to open to that, Matthew chapter 6, we'll start at verse 9. So feel free to get there. Because in this prayer, Jesus reveals what kind of Father we have in the content of his prayer. So before we actually read it, I want to give you a lens uh, for hearing it. I want you to picture for a sec uh, that you have a four-year-old niece or nephew that's like, hey, I want to build you your dream house. And you're like, oh, that's cute. What would you expect? Like, like Legos, glue, and maybe like poof, some sparkles or something like that. And now compare that to if the millionaire designer architect that does this stuff on TV called you up and said, hey, I want to build your dream house for you. What kind of results would you expect? Everything you want for and more and stuff you would have never even thought of. Your dream house in full. They can and will deliver. When Jesus invites his disciples to pray like this, He's inviting them to pray to the God of the universe that is completely good, 
And therefore, he's teaching us to expect each of the things that he invites us to pray. Because like that millionaire architect, we can expect that God can and will deliver. So, Matthew 6. He describes that our Father is. Here at the beginning of it. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Now this, in uh, the mindset of someone in that day, the words in heaven don't mean like a long ways away off in space, but rather in heaven is more like in the atmosphere around us. Like in the clouds, in the, the air that we breathe. So it actually is speaking to a nearness of God. So this our Father in heaven speaks to a Father that is present. Number two, hallowed be your name, uh, meaning that God is holy, uh, set apart, perfect, that he cannot sin, that he cannot do evil, therefore is perfectly good and therefore pure. Number three tells us about God. Uh, we can pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying that he is the ruling king, meaning there is nothing that can stand in his way, that he is powerful. Now, if you look at that list up there, so far it really doesn't say anything about whether or not God's going to use those good things for our benefit, that he's present, that he's pure, that he's powerful, what these next parts do, that he leverages those things for our benefit. Give us this day our daily bread. So easy to skip over that one. But if he's inviting you, pray this thing, it means he can deliver on it. He will give you all you need. In a word, he does provide. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. This gets back to that question I asked earlier on. See, in his heart of hearts, his desire is not to punish, but to give and to forgive. As Jesus describes his, his time here on earth, he says, I came to seek and to save the lost. I mean, in, in maybe one of the most famous Bible verses out there, John 3, 16, Jesus describes this as well. Say it along with me if you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And if you can keep going, in verse 17 after that, it really drives this, for, this through. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He not only wants it, but can deliver on it. Our Father pardons and he leads us, he says, lead us not into temptation and pray, deliver us from the evil one. Can't, God can and does rescue from the evil one and the evil inclinations within us. In a word, he protects us. There is no sin or brokenness in this world that he can't fix. He can and will fix them all in time. Let me just put this on, the, the, on a pinhead for you. If it ever seems to you like a relationship has dead-ended, whether a marriage, a friendship, a relationship with your child or with your parents, whether it looks that way and you give up, it's worth considering, have I turned away from trusting the story that Jesus is telling about his father and traded it for the lie that this this is one that he can't fix. There's no asterisk in the Lord's Prayer. 
There's no asterisks on the sort of trust that Jesus describes. So there is hope for even the most broken, the most challenging situation. That is the Father that Jesus reveals to us in this prayer. He wouldn't teach us to pray it if he couldn't deliver on these requests. He is not a toddler with glue and Legos and sparkles. He is the creator of the world who made you and me. He's the one who even came up with the idea of relationships in the first place. Letting go of hope that he can fix is giving up on trust in the one who's proven that he can raise the dead. Not fixable is a lie. Jesus tells us a different story about his father, both by his words and, maybe even more importantly, by how he lived, trusting in his heavenly father. Now, this is true, that God is trustworthy, but it is not easy to live by. Maybe for you, trust hasn't been eroded by a relationship that seems to be uh, dead-ended. But there's probably something that does. Or that at least that threatens to erode the belief that God is trustworthy. Jesus, when he called out, Abba, Father, he looked at the cup that was before him. And that cup was describing all the suffering, all the struggle, all the things that were to come. He called out, Abba, Father, when he was facing the brokenness of the world that wasn't his fault, but yet he would pay the penalty for. The consequences of other people's sins that yet he would bear the burden of. In, in the book, The Good and Beautiful God by author James Brian Smith, he poses a really helpful question on this topic. I want to share it with you. What are your cups? Cup or cups. What, what aspect of your life makes it difficult to trust God? Have you been hurt by divorce, whether yours or that of your parents or someone you love? Suffered a loss? Been able, unable to find a partner? Struggling with the prospect of lifelong singleness? Have you experienced the death of a loved one? or the death of a dream, the loss of a business, the loss of some physical capacity. He describes cup as anything we struggle with accepting as our lot in life. Our cup is usually the thing that makes it difficult for us to believe that God is good and therefore to continue to believe that he is indeed trustworthy. I find it super helpful to be able to name what that thing or things are. To, to literally put it down on paper. This is the hurdle. This is where I struggle. Because then you know where to focus your prayers. Lord, help me to trust in this place in particular. Help me to see that your provision even is greater in this place. So I challenge you this week, if you haven't considered that before, write this question down and consider it. Write those things down, and then along with it, and maybe in the same sheet of paper, one right next to it, remind yourself who gets the last word in writing the story of your life. It's not you. 
It's the one that Jesus obeys that sends him to the cross. It's the one that Jesus still hopes in, his Abba, whose love and character, one that is trustworthy, has so been proven that even there Jesus trusts him so fully that he obeys him completely. I love how one commentator uh, writes it. It's Thomas Smale. He says, this Jesus, uh, this act of Jesus going to the cross, this was not legal obedience driven by commandments. Uh, In other words, uh, it's not Jesus being strong-armed into this, but rather it is a trusting response to known love. That's worth writing down. There's one phrase to hold on to from today is that the Father's trustworthiness that's revealed by Jesus' trusting response to known love as he went to the cross. To borrow again from James Bryan Smith, uh, love that's been proved can be trusted even when things don't make sense. That that we get to say then in those moments of uncertainty, of, of facing the cups that are before us, Jesus trusted his Abba, Father, I too will trust a God that Jesus knows to be good, and so I do too. Because with that, then we get to look at the suffering that's before us, at the struggles in our own life, our cups, and put them in their proper setting. Not as the only thing, but as one thing in the midst of God's greater plan of restoring a world that is filled with brokenness and seeming dead ends to bring healing and hope to the entire world. When Jesus prays, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us daily bread. Deliver us from the evil one. He is teaching that God is good, that God still is in control, and that God's kingdom, God's active ruling to bring about his will for the world is never in trouble. So then we have the opportunity to join our story to God's story, to let it be swallowed up in God's story, a story in which our good and beautiful God gets the last word. He gets the last word, not you. The last word's not based on what you can see or what you think is possible, but he who raised Jesus from the dead gets the last word. His kingdom is coming and will come. His will is and will be done. Hold on to that. One last thing, and I'll wrap up for today. What do you notice when you look at this? Call it out. Really, lay it, hear me. What do you see? A splotch. Yeah, it's black. The first answer on this usually is not a paper that's mostly white. It's, I see the black splotch. Probably even if I put a tiny little one on there, you probably still could have picked it up and you'd been, ah, there's a dot on that. It's not completely white. This is an unfair test. I posed it so that you would answer this way. Nonetheless, I do think it is a fair illustration of how we often look at life. Noticing the black splotches, forgetting the widespread mercy and blessings of our God who is good and beautiful. The black splotches are there, let's be honest. Our troubles are real, things are hard, there are 
pains. We should take note of them and name them. There's actually even gift already just in doing that. If you don't make it any further, do that. But Jesus invites us in his prayer to see that they are small in comparison to his widespread mercy and his big picture plan for the story that he's writing to bring healing and hope and restoration to the whole world. It's an invitation, if you're willing to accept it, to deliberately call to mind all of his providing the widespread mercy of God in your life and not just the black splotches that so garner our attention. That he has been providing, is providing now, and as we read scripture, we can see that he has been doing that for all of time. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Friends, this isn't just pop psychology, positive thinking. It's seeing the world for what it really is, the deep truth of who God really is, good and trustworthy. And the more that we note and name those blessings, blessings given freely and undeserved, more we will see him as trustworthy and grow in trusting in him. My kids had a pretty scary ride that first night in Michigan in the snowstorm. But they found a measure of peace because they knew who was in the driver's seat. They knew something about their dad. That he'd helped them and prayed for them, that he'd bathed them and clothed them, that he'd got up night at night with them to help them face the scary dreams along with them. And so they thought of him as trustworthy and trusted and found peace. We have the same opportunity before us. God is with us. He's in the driver's seat. If you're willing to let him drive and not elbow him out, you'll see his widespread mercy. And we too will be able to rest in him being trustworthy, even in the most dead-ended difficulties and painful circumstances. We get to trust the words of Paul in Romans, that he works all things together for our good. And increasingly, maybe we'll even get to enjoy the ride. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.